All right, so if you could turn in your bulletins to page four, we have a, a pretty long text today. Um, we're going to start in chapter 30, verse 25, and then stretch into the second chapter, and I'll read for you. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to Jacob, if I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Jacob said to him, you yourself Know how I have served you and how your livestock have fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now when shall I provide for my own household also? Laban said, What shall I give you? Jacob said, You shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through your flocks today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb, and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later, when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, good, let it be as you have said. But that day, Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, everyone that had white on it and every lamb that was black, and put them in charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places, where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock, that they might breed among the sticks. uh, But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's. And from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the flock of your father and given them to me. 
In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. And the angel, then the angel of the Lord said to me in the dream, Jacob. And I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I've seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Then Jacob and then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he, acqu- that he had acquired in Padan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he, had, he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Galid. This is the word of God. Um, let's, let's open the door. I'm a little hot. So I'm going to secure the sheets of paper. All right. Um, so this is a really long story, um, and I hope you were able to follow along. And so basically, uh, we're continuing our series. We're looking, at, um, we're looking at the gospel and the life of Jacob. And, um, you know, a lot of people get really uh, upset, you know, and confused when they read this story. Because they see all this uh, greed and manipulation and all this deception... Uh, not just here, but remember last week, all throughout the life of Jacob. And, you know, maybe some of you are, you know, saying, this is not at all the kind of story I expected to read in the Bible. But let me challenge you and say that maybe the reason why you're troubled is because you have a flawed understanding of the Bible. You see, you think that maybe the Bible should be a book of virtues. It should be a book, a series of inspirational stories with role models for us to follow. But you see, the Bible is a story, and we see this again and again, of men and women who resist God's grace, who don't seek God's grace, who don't appreciate God's grace, who don't deserve God's grace. And when they fail again and again, God continues to work in them and through them. And what does that tell us? It tells us that the Bible is a story of grace. Right? The Bible is a story not of role models for us to follow. Right? Because that means it would be our moral effort. But the Bible is a story of God continually pouring out His grace on His people, on weak and broken people. And so that's the story we have here today. And so we're going to unpack this story. And here's the outline. We're going to look at the story and then we're going to draw out three lessons from it. And the, and the lessons are, number one, we're going to see, and this is the main theme, that um, we're going to see God's un, uh, relentless grace. 
And then number two, we're going to see the way of God's uh, guidance. I know it says discipline, right? Um, I miswrote that. It's the way of God's guidance. And then finally, we're going to see that we are to have no other gods. All right, so let's start. Let's look at the story. The story starts in verse 25. And it says that only when uh, Rachel had her son Joseph that Jacob says, it's time to go. And if you were here last week, you know just the poignancy of that, right? Because you see, for Jacob, even though he had so many other sons with Leah, Rachel's son is the only son that counts. And so he says, now I have a son. It's time to go back home. But before Jacob could go back home, he needs to acquire flocks. He needs to acquire wealth uh, to support his family in the land of Canaan. And so what ensues is yet another negotiation with the wily Laban. But this time, Jacob is prepared. This time, Jacob is wiser. And notice that he initiates the conversation, not like last time, right? And, La- and Jacob has a huge advantage over Laban because, you see, Laban desperately needs Jacob. And he admits this himself, right? He says, um, if I have found favor in your sight, which is the way a servant talks to his master, and all throughout Laban is speaking in these fractured sentences. We don't really see it there in the translation because it, it kind of smooths it over. But it just shows you how intensely desperate and earnest Laban is to keep Jacob. But even still, Jacob goes through these enormous lengths to explain himself, to justify his wages. You know, he says, when I first came, you had so little, but now you have so much. You know, and why does Jacob make all of this effort? Why doesn't he just say, here's my wages? The reason is because he's dealing with Laban. Right? Laban is this cheap, you know, mean, selfish guy. And so he has to continually explain. And finally, Jacob states his wages. And he says, I want all the spotted and speckled animals that come from the flock. And you have to understand that in the ancient world, when they read this, everyone would have been astonished, right? And, you know, the problem, of course, is that we're modern city-dwelling folks, so we don't know what's going on, right? But you have to understand, this is amazing. This is why it says again and again throughout the story, Jacob asked for the spotted and speckled animals. So what's going on? In the Middle East... All the animals were of one solid color, right? So all the sheep were white and all the goats were black. And very rarely were animals kind of this color. They would have these stripes or spots. It was kind of like this recessive gene. And maybe some estimates are around 5%, maybe less, of the flock would produce these um, spotted animals. And here's the thing you need to know. The typical wages of a shepherd overseer in the ancient world was 10 to 20% of the flock. And so Jacob is asking for something that only will give him 5% under normal conditions. Right? And so why, you know, it's Laban is like thrilled to death, you know. He immediately jumps, you know, he's so excited, and you can just imagine him like rubbing his hands, you know, saying, yes, I get to exploit Jacob more. Uh, why does Jacob give such a lowball offer. And there are two reasons. The first reason is that this is really the best offer that Jacob can get from Laban, right? Because 
Laban is greedy and selfish. And this is why Jacob has to even explain, you know, oh, oh that way you, you know I won't steal from you. That way you can see my honesty. Because he knows that Laban, the first moment he gets, is going to cheat Jacob and just steal from Jacob. But the second reason is that Jacob has a few tricks up his own sleeves. And we'll see that later. All right, so Laban says, deal. But then notice, immediately, he goes through his flocks and he takes out all the animals that have stripes and spots, right? This is the kind of man Laban is. Even though Jacob has a raw deal, he has to make sure that the odds are completely in his favor. But Jacob has his own tricks. And um, what's going on? You know, as notice that as um, we read the story, it, it was kind of confusing, right? And you have to understand that an enormous amount of scholarship and ink has been spilled. And I've read like so many commentaries trying to explain what is it exactly that Jacob's doing. And to be honest with you, we're not exactly sure. Um, it has something to do with the fact that in the ancient world, they believed that if you put certain colored sticks in front of animals, uh, it would influence the color of the offspring, right? And now we know, right? We're modern people. We know from genetics that that just simply isn't true. Um, and I know that immediately the question we have is, you know, was it effective? You know, is that what the Bible is saying? Absolutely not. Because notice, when God comes to Jacob, God says that I've given you all these spotted and speckled animals. Does God say, it's a good thing you put those strange colored sticks, because, you know, that's how I did it. That's not how it works, okay? And so what we have in the story, then, is we have two men who are trying to outfox each other. right? We have two con artists trying to steal from each other. But in the end, it's Jacob that comes out on top. And after six years, it says, Jacob becomes incredibly wealthy. And we see that in verse 43. It says that he acquired great flocks, male and female servants, camels and donkeys. And the thing you need to know, right, is that the language there is just talks of this super abundance. This is well beyond what anyone could have possibly imagined arising from this deal. Does that make sense, right? That this is way beyond, even, you know, with Jacob trying to tilt the odds back in his favor with his little colored sticks. This is above and beyond. And this is why in the story it keeps repeating the spotted and speckled animals because it's just so amazing, the incredible wealth that Jacob gets. So that's the first half of the story. But then the second half of the story, it turns. And what happens now is that Jacob is so fantastically wealthy that his whole plan, his whole situation becomes in jeopardy. It says that the sons of Laban took note. Now, this is the very first time that we're told that Jacob is not just dealing with Laban, but that Laban has this extended kinship family network, right? And this actually comes into play. Um, we didn't write, we didn't see it in the story, but afterwards, uh, Laban chases Jacob down and he rounds up this posse of uh, armed men from his family clan, right? So this is letting us know that Jacob is dealing not just with, ja- uh, with Laban, but he's dealing with this huge, you know, extended clan. And, this, and the thing is that the sons of Laban are plotting against Jacob. It's not just that they're saying, oh, look at all that wealth, you know, gee, that's so unfair. They're actually plotting, and they're thinking of forcefully taking that wealth. 
And you have to understand that Jacob's life is in danger at this point. This is a crucial moment in the story. Everything is about to fall apart. And at that moment, God comes to Jacob and he says, Arise and go to the land of your fathers. It's almost like the call to Abraham. And so Jacob takes his wives with him, Rachel and Leah, and he takes them to the, to the middle of the field. Why does he do that? Because he needs absolute secrecy. He can't let anyone in the clan of Laban know what he's about to do, right? It's a crucial moment. And he's trying to desperately convince his wives because he needs their cooperation. He needs them to go along and secretly slip away. And he makes the argument along two fronts. He says that number one, Laban has cheated me all of this, all this time, but look. God has given me all of this wealth. Don't you see? Hit your wagon with me. Laban's stock is on the way down. My stock is on the way up. I'm so wealthy. Come along with me. But the second argument he makes is he says, the God, my God, the God of my fathers has come to me in a dream and he's saying, the promises at Bethel are coming true, are being fulfilled. Now, um, I think it's important here to pause just for a moment and to look at these promises of God, right? You see, God comes to Bethel, God comes to Jacob at Bethel, and he repeats the promises that he gave to Abraham. And these are the promises. There are three promises. He says, I will, through you, I will give you a great people, right? Many, many children. He says, and number two, I will give you great possessions and wealth, many, many flocks. And then number three, he says, I will give you the land of Canaan, the promised land. And I remember, um, as a young Christian, I would read the Old Testament, and uh, you know, talk about people, possessions, and land. And I'm like, you know, what does this have to do with me? Um, what does this have any relevance in my life? Um, but it has absolute relevance. And this is the absolute uh, essential key to unlocking the Old Testament, all right? So let me explain it. There's a narrow way to read these promises. Some people say, well, in the ancient world, people, possessions, and land were things that, that, that those ancient people really valued, right? Those were really important. And so all that God is doing is he's saying, these are good things that I'm giving to you. But it has no relevance for us, right? Because, you know, we don't care about land, or at least the land of Israel. We don't care so much about uh, children. Um, but is that what is the story about? And there's a, there's a kind of version of this, actually, that says that the promises continue to apply to Jews, to modern-day descendants of Abraham and to the modern-day nation of Israel, right? That these promises of land, people, and possessions still apply, but it really has no relevance to us. Is that what the Bible tells us? If you look at the New Testament, right, and we always use the New Testament as a lens to interpret the Old Testament, and if you look at the book of Hebrews, right, The author of Hebrews says that all of these things, all of these promises, point forward to a greater reality. The author of Hebrews says that when Abraham was journeying to the promised land, he knew that he was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and designer is God. He knew, right, that the land is not an end to itself, but he was pointing forward to what the Hebrews calls the heavenly land, right? That the land, the people and the possessions is about the new heavens and the new earth. It's a picture of salvation. Does that make sense? This is why 
Paul in Galatians and Romans can refer to Abraham believing in the promises. And what does he say? He says, Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. How else would that make any sense unless it's about salvation, that people, possessions, and lands is a picture of the riches of salvation. It's a picture of the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. Okay? All right, so... um, so Jacob, all right, understands this, and he's going to Rachel and, Le- and Leah, and he's saying, all of these promises are being fulfilled. And what does Rachel and Leah say? Do they say, you know, the promises, you know, the covenant promises? Absolutely, no. They seem more interested in the fact that their father is robbing them. They seem more interested in the economic reasons for the decisions. And so they say yes. And then finally, after 20 years now, Jacob is able to go back home. And it's really an amazing story, right? 14 years working for his wife, 6 years working for his, for his wealth. He comes to Laban penniless without any family. And then now he's leaving with this great abundant flock. Now he's leaving with 12 children, 11 sons, one daughter. The promises at Bethel are coming true. But Jacob has to leave in secret, right, while they're shearing the sheep because his situation is still precarious. At any moment, Laban can come in and seize everything he has. But notice at the very end, almost as a footnote, Rachel it says, steals the household gods. And she puts the whole plan in danger because what happens is Laban you know, gathers up his posse, he chases Jacob down, and he's about to kill and wipe out the whole family. But at the last minute, God comes to Laban in a dream and he says, don't harm Jacob. And so that's the story. All right, so what are the lessons? What is the story trying to teach us? Number one, this story shows us God's relentless grace. The question we should be asking ourselves is, how is it that a guy like Jacob, this rascal scoundrel, is so richly blessed, right? Because in Jacob, we have someone who doesn't think about God. He's just pursuing his own selfish interests, right? Never once do we see Jacob pray. This is so um, all the more stark when we think about, for example, others like Abraham's servant. Do you remember that story? Abraham's servant goes to Haran to look for a wife for Isaac. And when he reaches the well, what does he do? He gets down on his knees and he prays to God and he begs God to help him. Remember Isaac. When Rebekah, his wife, was barren, Isaac prayed for 20 years continuously. But does Jacob ever pray? At every crucial juncture, we never see Jacob pray. And we get the impression that Jacob was, you know, he was pursuing these promises not in obedience to God, but out of his own selfish interests, right? That he was pursuing his wealth not in faith, but to get back at Laban, out of vengeance, to outsmart him. And including his wives. We get the distinct impression that his wives are more interested in the wealth of Jacob than in the God of Jacob, right? And it's only really after six years, after um, seeing all of these blessings, that Jacob finally seems to be mindful of God. That only when God comes to him in the dream at the end does Jacob seem uh, to talk about these promises of God. And so what am I trying to say? What's the point? All I'm saying is that Jacob is not a model 
of faith. He's not a man you know, who walks with God, who trusts God, but a man for whom God is almost an afterthought. And yet, and yet, God relentlessly pursues Jacob and he blesses Jacob. Even though Jacob never seeks God, even though Jacob never deserves the blessings, what does this tell us? It tells us that God's love and grace are not dependent on what we do, on our strong faith, on our life of holiness, but it's based on the promises of God. You see, when did God give these promises? Do you guys remember to Jacob? He gave them to Jacob before Jacob was even born, before Jacob had done anything right or wrong, right? God says, the older shall serve the younger. You see, we tend to think that God only responds to us if we do something for God, that we have to first act. I remember uh, watching the movie Malcolm X in the movie theaters. And uh, if you guys know this story, Malcolm X is this famous civil rights activist. And the movie goes into his early life. He is this criminal. But then he ends up in prison. And in, and in prison, he converts to Islam. And there's this scene in the movie where... Um, Malcolm X is converting and he's taking his first tentative steps towards God. And a fellow Muslim prisoner is trying to encourage Muhammad. And he says to, Mo, uh, not Muhammad, um, to Malcolm X, and he says to Malcolm X, um, if you take one step towards God, God will take two steps towards you. If you take one step towards God, God will take two steps towards you. And that really struck me because I thought, wow, that's so, that sounds so generous, right? You take one step, but then God will take double the number of steps towards you. He'll take two steps. But then I realized, as I thought about it more, that means it still depends on you, right? You still have to take the first step. And is that the story that we have here? Is God waiting for Jacob to make the first step? Let me share with you another story. I heard um, this story when I was in college and it made such an impression on me. It's the story of Darlene Rose. And Darlene Rose is a missionary... Uh, to Papua New Guinea in the 1930s. She actually wrote a story, um, a book about her story. It's called Evidence Not Seen. Excellent book. I recommend it. And so basically, she's a missionary, but then World War II breaks out. And the Japanese invade the island, and she's taken as a prisoner. And she's taken to this um, uh, prison camp, and they're trying to force her to confess that she is an American spy. And so what they do is they daily interrogate her, they beat her, they starve her, they give her just this tiny portion of porridge to eat every day. And so she's just dying of starvation, right? And she relates in the story that one day she was in prison and she looks out the window and off in the distance she sees this little girl eating a banana. And she says at that moment she felt this incredibly intense, like she's never felt before, this intense desire to have that banana, this waves of cravings. And she collapses into the prison cell and she says, Oh God, can you please give me that banana? But then she thought about it. She says, Wait a minute. How can God possibly bring a banana into my prison cell? How can God get it past all the guards and everything? That's impossible. There's no way. And then she became embittered. And she became angry with God. And she said, God, why did you bring me to this prison? Why are you making me suffer so much? You can't even give me a single banana. At that moment, she started to hear footsteps coming into her prison cell. 
And she was really terrified because she thought it was her interrogators coming again to beat her and to torture her. But the person who came into her prison cell was Mr. Yamaji. And in the story, you know that Mr. Yamaji is um, a Japanese military officer whom Darlene Rose had befriended many years ago. And Mr. Yamaji found out that Darlene Rose was in this prison camp, and so he goes to visit her, and when he sees her, he's overcome with emotion, and, you know, and they're talking, he, he wants to see how she's doing. And then after the very brief conversation, he says to her, I'm really sorry, Miss Rose, but I can't free you. I can't set you free. It's not in my power. And Darlene Rose says, you know, Mr. Yamaji, that's okay. It was just so, I'm so happy just to see a friendly face in this camp. Thank you for visiting me. And so he leaves, but before he goes, he talks with her interrogators. And she could kind of hear in a muffled way that he's speaking in a very harsh and very kind of scolding voice. And after a conversation for a little bit, he leaves. And then an hour later, she hears the footsteps coming. And she is terrified because now she's thinking, oh no, the interrogators are going to take revenge because Mr. Yamashi got mad at them because of me. And they come in, but rather than beating her, they have in their arms these huge bunches of bananas, and they put this huge amount of bananas into her prison cell, and they say, these are for you. And in this story, it's really emotional when she recounts it. She sits on the prison cell, and she counts how many bananas there are. And she says there were 92 bananas. And she says the moment she realized there were 92 bananas, she just felt this incredible sense of shame and she started crying and she pushed the bananas to the corner and she said, God, I am so unworthy. I was so mad at you and so angry with you that you couldn't even give me a single banana and now I have 92 bananas. And she just felt this incredible sense of repentance and just, just this feeling of God's love. And that was really the turning point in the story because from that moment on, she started to recover and the interrogators treated her well. And so here's the thing. We have a God of complete and absolute free grace. God is not someone who is waiting for us to make the first move. God is not someone who is saying, you have to shape up so that you can deserve my grace. And we so often forget that, right? We may believe that on an intellectual level, but with our hearts, do we not? We still think that we have to bargain with God, that we have to somehow give Him something in order for Him to love us. And this is very important for us to understand that when we are in Christ, there is nothing that we can do that is good that could ever make God love us any more than He already does. And when we are in Christ, there is nothing bad that we can do that we can make God love us any less than He already does. Because God loves us because of what Jesus Christ did. Not because we deserve it. Not because we cried at camp. You know, not because we prayed seeking God, but because of God's grace. You know, and some of you might say, well, if that's the case, why should we do anything good? You know, why should we change if God is a God of grace? And the answer to that is, you know, huge. It's a huge theological thing. I, I don't have time to go into that, but let me just say this one thing. Think back to the story of Darlene Rose. Did Darlene Rose, when she received her 92 bananas, did she say, yes, I don't have to change. I don't have to think any differently. Absolutely not, right? 
she broke down in tears and she repented because, you see, God's kindness transforms us. You see, in the story that we have with Jacob, we don't see God waiting for Jacob to shape up and to believe in God before he'll pour out his blessings. But we see God continually blessing Jacob, continually showing Jacob grace and love. And then years later, Jacob starts to come around. Jacob starts to believe. Jacob starts to change. Do you see? So that's the first point. And then the next two points are relatively short. The second point is the way of God's guidance. In the story, we see that God is leading Jacob to the promised land. And notice the way God does it. God does it in two ways. He says to Jacob in a dream, get up and go to the promised land. Right? Direct command. But the second thing God does is he gives Jacob a lot of trouble. And he makes it so that Laban's clan is plotting to kill Jacob, perhaps. And he makes it so that Jacob simply cannot stay. He has to leave. There's no other options. And so what's the application for us? That God leads us not only by opening doors in front of us, but also by closing doors behind us. And just to share my own personal story, and I've shared this with you before, right? That why am I here with you today? You know, why? How, how is it that I became your pastor? You see, after seminary, I was seeking, you know, an associate pastor position in so many different churches. I can't even tell you just the enormous pain that I went through of having all these doors shut on me, all these options closed. And finally, it came to the point where really there was nothing else. There was no other options. There was nothing else I could do. And so finally, at that point, I said, let me think outside the box. You know, let me start exploring other options. And can I just say to you that I'm so happy that I'm here. You know, it's been such an immense joy to be your pastor. I mean, you can ask Christina. I marvel at it all the time. Just amazing God's goodness. And not only that, I really think that God, you know, is using me effectively for his kingdom. But, but can I tell you quite honestly, if I could script out my life, and if I could just like, you know, arrange it, really, this is not what I would have chosen as my first choice. And so, let me just tell you that sometimes, think about this in your life, that maybe when God is bringing troubles in your life and he's closing doors all around you, maybe God is still directing you, he's still guiding you, and he's pushing you in another direction towards the open door. All right, so that's the second point. And then the third point is that this story shows us that we are to have no other gods. At the very end of the story, Rachel steals her father's household gods. And what are those things? Well, they're these little statues of pagan gods. They're, they're idols, basically. Why does Rachel take these idols with her? Well, we have to think about it from Rachel's perspective, right? Jacob is asking Rachel to take an incredibly difficult journey. She has never left home in her life. And he's saying, travel with me for 500 miles into a strange land full of enemies and full of aliens, right? And not only that, you have to understand that because of Jacob's incredible wealth, the entire family is like this moving target. They're incredibly vulnerable. And so Rachel is saying to herself, you know, God, the God of Jacob is saying he will protect us, but what if he doesn't? What if he forgets? And so wouldn't it be prudent, wouldn't it be wise to cover my bases, right, just in case, you know, trust God, 
but also to bring along the idols, right? As an insurance policy. And what the Bible here is showing us is a picture of what so many of us do. Listen. Some of us say we believe that we're Christians, right? But we don't fully commit. We're not in all the way. Listen, here's the question. Is Jesus the center of your life? Is he the ultimate passion of your heart? And I'm not saying, you know, that all of us fail, right? You know, we all fall short of this idea, but, but do we repent and do we go back? Or are we like Rachel and are we holding back? Are we like Rachel and we have, you know, our hearts in so many other things? You see, it cannot be. Either Christ is the center or he's not. Either Jesus is the foundation or he's not. Either he is the passion of your life or he's not. You know, you have to seriously think this through. You know, and I'm not talking to new people, people who are just exploring the Christian faith and you're wrestling with whether Jesus is really who he says he is and you're really thinking through, that's fine, that's good. You know, you should continue to do that. But listen, if it's been years, if it's been years and you're still holding back, if it's been years and, you know, you have to ask yourself, do you really believe the gospel or are you just playing along? Are you just going through the motions? Does Jesus define you? Is he the center of your life or is Christianity a kind of hobby that you engage in? Is it something that maybe you engage in just once in a while on Sundays? This is serious. Is Jesus the center or is he not? Or does your, is your heart with something else? All right, so that's the third point. And let me close by this last point, And this is the gospel connection. Let's go back to the story of Jacob. And as we read the story of Jacob, this is the question we should be asking ourselves. How is it that Jacob can be so richly blessed by God? How is it that God gives Jacob all of these riches, right? When Jacob doesn't deserve it, when Jacob doesn't even seek it. And here's the answer. Do you guys remember in the book of Matthew the story of Jesus' temptations? Jesus goes through three temptations. And in the third temptation, Satan takes Jesus up to this high mountain. And he shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, all the wealth and all the riches. And Satan says, all of these are yours if you will only bow down and worship me. And that's a weird thing for Satan to say, right? Because isn't it already all of Jesus's? Isn't it his rightfully? And here's the temptation that Satan is doing. Satan is saying, yes, take it, but without the cross. Take it without suffering. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, absolutely not. Jesus says, the reason why I came is to let go of my wealth and to let go of my comfort and the riches that I had in heaven and to suffer on the cross and to experience the poverty on the cross so that I could rescue my people, so that for my sake they could have what is not rightfully theirs, the riches of salvation. And that is the gospel. And I think nowhere is this more beautifully expressed than in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. This is what Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, 
Yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Do you understand that Jesus, though he was rich, became poor so that we who were poor in our sins might become, have the riches in Christ. And that is the gospel. And that is the gospel. And when we see Jesus giving himself to us utterly like that, completely like that to us, how can we not give ourselves utterly back to him? You know, how can we reserve? How can we be like Rachel and hold on to our idols, you know, just in case? God is giving, giving himself utterly to us. We should give himself, ourselves utterly to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just pray that you are the God of grace, that you took Jacob, that scoundrel, that rascal who continually falls short, who continually only thinks of himself, and yet you so richly blessed him. And that is a picture of what you do for us. And Lord, we pray that that would break us and, and, and cause us to repentance, that your kindness would transform us. Oh Lord, we pray that, that we would be a people so entranced, so deeply amazed and in all of your grace. And Lord, to the extent that we are not, I pray that we would seek you out in the scriptures, we would seek you out in prayer and meditate on the gospel every day until, until it, it breaks through our hearts. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.